Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. Betterment. 
And uh, Atherton wrote down a lot of things in her wonderful book called The Intuitive Dance. And I have a million questions. First of all, Atherton from Ontario, welcome to the show. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and it's lovely to talk to you again, Kat. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, let's, let's let people know what a medical intuitive is and, and, and what they do. So uh, there are many different types of medical intuitives, uh, but basically what a medical intuitive does is they look at a person's energy field and they look at the energy of the person from a physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual level. And what they're doing is they're looking for the blocks to see where they can assist in helping the client move forward with uh, any particular health issue, whether it be physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual. And that's it in a nutshell. Wow. Okay. I know, you know, I'm also a large fan of Carolyn Mace, and that's how she began, too, as a medical intuitive. Now, did you just, like, wake up one day and say, oh, boy, I'm a medical intuitive, or did you study for this? I studied for this, um, and it took me two years to get certified, Um, but I also didn't engage in trying to learn how to hone my abilities as a medical intuitive until I had been trained in several different healing modalities, I wanted to make sure that I had a good, strong, solid base before I uh, undertook the course because it's quite intensive. And, uh, no, I had never set out to be a healer. Um, If somebody had told me 20 years ago I'd be doing this for a living, I would have laughed them out of the room. Uh, It all came, (laughs) you know, it uh, it, it just came out of left field for me. Uh, When I'd had a near-death experience and the young man who saved my life when he suggested that I train to do what he was doing. I I looked at him and I smiled very sweetly and I said, I think you're crazy. I think you're nuts. And, uh, but I, I thought about it for a couple of months and then I I did go back to him and I said, okay, I'm curious. Let's see where this takes me. And the rest they say is history. (laughs) Wow. But I mean, that's a pretty big hankering to have. That's a pretty big thing to say, well, I'm going to be a healer now. How did you narrow it down i mean you uh, there there are so many types of healings that can go on so how did you pick your particular field well i started with the uh, the young man that helped me and uh it took me a year to get certified with him and then that uh through that process i was meeting a lot of other people who were in different healing modalities and that would just spark my curiosity so then i would I would talk to them and find out how they would do different things, and then I would start uh, cherry-picking the modalities that I felt I was more in line with. So uh, I, I just, you know, continued my training that way. Well, you've got to have some kind of a talent. You must have some kind of an ability that you say, okay, I can do this because I am what, X, Y, or Z. I, mm-hmm. uh, what is that? Yeah. Well, you know, um, when this young man who was helping me told me that I was intuitive, I um, I just kind of smiled at him because I knew that I was, but I didn't know I could do anything with it. And I was very fortunate in the fact that I grew up in a home where my parents recognized my intuitive abilities. They, they themselves were highly intuitive and psychic. So when I started to talk about the things that I saw and the visions that I had as a child, uh, it was treated with respect and, you know, just normal everyday stuff. 
So when well, now, he isn't along, intuition just kind of a hunch, you know, sort of a, oh, I think maybe I won't go that direction, and then you find out later there's an accident. Is there is there more to it than that? Yes, and everybody's intuitive. and But a lot of people don't realize that they can choose what to do with their intuition. You know, So just because you connect your intuitive ability doesn't mean you have to be a healer, for example. Uh, but I, what I learned through my process of, of learning how to do uh, energy work was that everybody's intuitive, but there are four different types of intuition. Now, everybody will be all four, but for me, figuring out what, what my predominant intuitive ability was helped me to open up to my gifts a lot sooner and a lot faster and helped me be more confident. Well, now, what are those uh, four different types of intuition? Well, the four different types are uh, clairvoyant, clairsentience, claircognizance, and clairaudience. Now, clairvoyant is clear seeing, so that's being able to see things in your mind's eye, the, the pictures, the images. Uh, the uh, clairsentience is clear feeling. It's feeling other people's emotions or pain. Claircognizance is the hunch. It's just knowing that I need to turn right versus left, and maybe I shouldn't go down that road because there's an accident. And then there's the clairaudience, which, which is hearing voices, which is the one you never really tell the doctors about. <laughs> <laughs> Aha, uh-huh. sort of like Joan of Arc. She was uh, clairaudient then. Yes. Well, wow. Okay, so um, so which one are you of those lovely four, or are you all of them? Well, like I said, everybody is all four, but one will be predominant. For me, I'm predominantly a clairvoyant. Uh, then my secondary is claircognizance, uh, clairaudience, and clairsentience is a little bit lower on the scale for me. Uh, when I started, so when I was a, when I was a teenager and I found out that you could see auras, I was on a mission to try to see auras, but I misconstrued how you can see, and this throws a lot of people off. Not everybody can see auras with their human eyes. I can only see an aura through my third eye, and when I understood that, I suddenly it suddenly dawned on me, I've been seeing auras my whole life. I could just tell you what colors were around people's heads. I just thought I was making it up. Wow. And uh, now, okay, so you're growing up. Did you grow up in Canada as well? Yes, I did. I grew up in Windsor. All right. And so there you are in school, and you're seeing something around somebody, and that's not something that you can talk about at recess, right? Exactly. Well, let's just say Atherton had to learn how to keep her mouth shut. (laughs) (laughs) I see. I see. So it wasn't something you could discuss with your girlfriends or uh, or anything. Or or were they sympathetic? Was any one of them sympathetic to you? I never discussed it with my girlfriends because they they would just look at you like you were cuckoo. So the only person I really talked to about it was my mother. Well, thank heavens that you had your mother. I mean, they glow, uh, g- growing up with gifts like that uh, is is pretty amazing. I have a very dear friend, Patricia Michelle, who was able to uh, take copperhead snakes or one of those cotton mouths, maybe what, whatever those real poisonous ones are in the South, and she was able to play with them and talk to them as a five-year-old. And uh, so she 
a definite gift as well, and and she is a, a psychic. But that's not you can't invite invite your friends to come over and play with poisonous snakes. It's got to be no. difficult for no. a youngster. Not exactly going to get you invited for sleepovers. <laughs> Exactly. All, unless you're like the main attraction. Here, tell me my fortune. Read my, yes. you know, read read me. <laughs> yes, exactly. Wow. So now, what did your parents do with this? Uh, it, was it just a gift on the side, or did they uh, practice their their gifts as well? They just em- employed it into their everyday life. Now, my mother grew up. Um, on a farm and uh, Irish German and her maternal grandmother was um, very highly uh, uh, intuitive. And my mother was reading uh, other people's palms by the time she was five and she was pretty accurate about it. Um, Wow. It was just something that she just did. And she only did it if she was invited. I didn't know until I was 14 that she could actually read people's palms. Um, my father, on the other hand, was very, very psychic. He uh, he never talked about it, but you learned to trust him. He was not a man to say no, but if he came to you and asked you if you were doing something and it didn't feel right to him, you'd just say, no, I don't think so. You better stay home. And you learned to honor that. You learned to listen to that. He had had uh, numerous instances in his life that had saved his life, had saved my sister and I from um, a burning house when we were children. So we just knew that Daddy had this ability to do something, and it was just everybody just incorporated it into their everyday life. They didn't treat it as anything special or weird. They just treated it as very normal and something that was to be honored and respected. Well, now, we all know that we inherit the DNA from our parents, and mm-hmm. we're also talking about um, inheriting um invisible DNA as well, uh, Jeanette, like ideas and belief systems. So is this also, are these gifts passed down? Are they genetic? Are they spiritual? How does it get from a parent to a child? Well, I agree with you. I do think it's passed down genetically. Um, But whether it's nurtured or not is going to be totally dependent on the child's environment as as a child is growing up. You know, we we know that very young children can see auras and they see it as being completely natural. But for a lot of children, it gets shut down by the time they're the age of two. And it's something as simple as um, let's draw a tree and they pick up a purple crayon. And we go, no, no, trees are brown and green. Oh, that'll shut them down right off the bat. Because all of a sudden they realize that they've done something wrong. What they're seeing is not what you're seeing. And they want to please the parent. Ah, I see. Okay, so now do you think that science is going to be able to capture that genotype and be able to implant in somebody uh, the DNA of these uh, clairaudience, clairvoyance, claircognizant, clairsentience? Is that something that we can look forward to? Um, I wouldn't know how to answer that when it would be so much easier just to give everybody permission to nurture it because they already have that ability. Everybody has that ability. Ah, okay. So it doesn't have to be implanted. It has to be nurtured. And how would we do that? How would we go about that? We'd have to recreate the educational system, but um, what would you do? Well, you know, um, again, we're going back to very young children, um, 
and young children can uh, are also highly clairsentient in the beginning and it's learning to be truthful to them so if, if a young child comes up to you and says oh you're not are you not feeling all right and you aren't feeling all right then you need to acknowledge that and say you know what you're right i don't feel all right but it's nothing to do with you you don't need to fix it it's all right go play that begins to nurture it uh, so and if a child comes to you and says, oh, you know, I've had a vision, and sitting down with them and saying, oh, really, tell me about the vision, and what do you think, and how do you feel about it? You're, you're, giving, them, you're giving them a safe place to talk about what's happening to them naturally. Uh, if they say, you know, uh, mommy, I uh, see angels in my room, oh, that's lovely. Uh, do they talk to you, and what do they say? And I remember when I was a kid, uh, my mother came in my room once, and she said, why aren't you asleep yet? And I said, because the angels are dancing on the ceiling. And she said, oh, that's lovely, dear. Tell them to go back to heaven and let them uh, tell so that you can go back to sleep. <laughs> and by that simple acknowledgement, it taught me that I had the control over them being present or not present. So I did that. I just said, okay, guys, you got to go now. i got to go to sleep. And they all went. They left. So see wow. the level of control that that taught at such an early age, just through a simple, calm discussion? Incredible, incredible. So they learned that it's not wrong, it's not bad, it's just, okay, well, just not now. Have them come back yeah. after dinner. Yeah. Yeah. And now what about, okay, so were you raised in a religion or were you uh, not in a system that would necessarily, you know, put the kibosh on this kind of behavior and thinking? Well, you know, that's interesting that you should ask that question because um, my parents were both very spiritual, but my mother made a point of telling us that we needed to explore different religions so that we could decide on our own faith. Um she said that if we wanted to have harmonious marriages, we should accept the faith of our partners, which my sister and I both have. But in that exploration, what we were doing is we were learning lots of different points of view. So I've been everything from a, a Buddhist to a Jew, to be honest. Um, and then I, did, <laughs> I, I have joined my, my husband's church, and, uh, and I was very heavily involved you know, in his Protestant faith for over 25 years. Um, but underneath it all, my, my father didn't agree with dogma. Uh, he, he was deeply spiritual and he believed in God. My mother was a theosophist. She was uh, a student of theosophy. So as I got older, she would spend more and more time teaching me the different uh, forms of thought in theosophy, which again is this, this marriage of Eastern and Western thought in that God isn't um, a man or a woman. God is God is all in the all, and God is only love, and God is not judgment. So that, that has always been my core. That has always been my base. And in, the, and in the room when I'm working with the angels, that has always been reinforced, always. Wow, boy, that's an incredible story. And uh, so, so the key then is when we encounter someone young who's displaying something, uh, you know, as simple as wanting to color a tree with a purple crayon, that we go ahead and nurture that. We go ahead and say, okay, that's great. Show me what you've got. And not mm -hmm. to put them down and not to scold them and not to say, oh, that's wrong, but really yeah. to let them and help them explore what's coming through them at that time. Yes, exactly. Okay. Wow. So that's that's amazing. Um, 
Uh, I read your book, and of course, it's just stunning. Uh, it, you know, I think it ought to be required reading for everybody who goes to school. It's, it's incredible. It's um, enlivening. It's inspirational, and it it explains so much that we, uh, at times, feel or we follow a hunch or we follow something. It really gives us permission to explore that side of ourselves that it certainly isn't encouraged in the West. Um, you talk about the three simple things and the research that you were doing into that. Um, how was this concept researched, and, and, and how did it help you in your work? Uh, so are you when you say research, are you talking about the research study that I did with my colleagues, or are, are you talking about the, um, how I discovered these three different things? Um, all of the above, both. Okay. Okay. So um, the the first thing that I uh, I started to learn was um, the vertical axis, which is the most powerful grounding technique that I've ever learned. Uh, in the beginning, when I was learning how to be a healer, uh, people were always telling me that I wasn't grounded, and I had no idea what they were talking about. So people would tell me about you know going for a massage or going for a walk in nature, which is lovely, but it what you know it doesn't hold for a long period of time. And as you start to see clients, you need to stay grounded. Well, you haven't got time to go and get a massage or go for a walk in the woods. So the, the, uh, the vertical axis taught me how to stay grounded to both heaven and earth at the same time, all the time. And, and I learned that, um, that you could do it in less than a minute a day. So I started doing it every morning and every night, and it was a huge benefit to, to myself and for my practice. And I started teaching it to clients, and they were coming back and saying, "Oh, this is really amazing. I find I'm not I'm a lot less anxious. I'm not uh, I'm sleeping better. Uh, I, I, you know." And I was surprised because I could feel it, but I was getting all this lovely feedback from my clients. And then I learned about cord cutting, and and I realized that especially when you're dealing with people, uh, you know, no matter what kind of a service industry you're in you're in, you're dealing with people on a day-to-day basis, and there's this constant energetic interaction with people, and you start to pick it up like static cling. And and I found that by doing a cord cutting with Archangel Michael every night, that it was clearing away that static so that I was sleeping better, and I was waking up not feeling so frazzled. And then I realized that I, um, I had a, a funny thing happen to me once. I when I, my practice started getting really, really busy, and I was seeing about 120 people a week. And I started waking up really exhausted, and I couldn't get to bed fast enough. And I couldn't understand why, you know, I was grounding, I was cutting cords, I was, you know, eating properly, I was staying hydrated, and I couldn't understand why I was so tired. And then one night, I, and I said to Archangel Michael, you have to show me what I'm doing wrong here. I don't understand. And they showed me this very powerful dream where... I heard voices outside of my bedroom door in the middle of the night, and when I opened the door, all my clients for the next day were standing there, and they were saying, Atherton, now when I come for my session tomorrow, we need to do this and this and this. And what they, that dream taught me was I was working all day with clients, but then I was working on them all night in the dream time. And the angels explained to me that we didn't need to do that, that God created daytime and nighttime for a reason. Daytime is for working, and nighttime was for resting. And then they taught me how to do the dream time management technique, uh, which I was sort of familiar with because of my mother teaching me about um, the astral plane. 
I just never realized that there were two different levels to the astral plane. And most of us, when, well, everybody, when they sleep, they leave their bodies and they go into the lower astral plane, which is where all the weird, funky stuff happens. You know, you walk into a bar and, you know, there's an elephant having a beer with a dog sort of thing. And what I didn't realize is that I could ask the angels to escort me to a higher level of spiritual consciousness in the astral plane where I could rest and they could help me to uh, re uh, regenerate energetically. And when I started combining that with the, my other two techniques, I was waking up in the morning fully refreshed, restored, and renewed. So I was sharing these techniques with clients. And then one day I was talking to a colleague of mine. And I said, you know, I, I, I'm getting this feedback from my clients, and I've been getting this kind of feedback for a couple of years. I said, do you think we could put together a study to see if it's really true? I mean, it would be nice to have uh, some research to back it up. And she said, absolutely. She used to be a research scientist, so she helped me to design this whole project. And what we did is we got 30 volunteers to commit to a 40-day practice where they did the vertical axis every morning, and then every night they did the vertical axis, cord cutting with the angels, and then the dream time management. That all could be done in less than five minutes a day. And then we would have them come in. Um, three, we can't come in every 20 days, so in the, in the beginning and day 20 and day 40. And we would uh, check their uh, urine pH, their blood pressure, and their heart rate. And then we would also have them do an emotional um, uh, survey to see how they were doing at an emotional level. And what we found at the end of 40 days was that um, there wasn't much change at a physical level. So urine pH didn't change that much. Uh, blood pressure went down a little bit. Uh, heart rates went down just a little bit. But the emotional improvement was up to 50%. And the two extreme cases that we had, just to give you a, the benchmark of how successful this study was, is we had one woman who was losing a child to cancer and we had another woman who was losing her mother to cancer. And the two of them said that having done the study helped them to stay grounded and clear and present as they were losing these family members. And everybody else said that they, um, it reduced their anxiety anywhere from 30 to 50%. They were sleeping better. They were eating better. They were more mindful of um, exercising. So very dramatic improvements to their day-to-day -day life, which is what I was seeing in my practice, and now I have the research to prove it. Well, of course, and that is it's just incredible, and I want to tell people right now the title of your book because if they're like me, they want to go online this instant and get it. It's called The Intuitive Dance, Building, Protecting, and Clearing Your Energy. The author is Atherton Drenth, D-R-E-N-T-H, uh, with whom we are speaking right now, and uh, if you buy the intuitive dance and you read it, you're going to improve your life on so many levels. It's just um, an unbelievable process for people to build their spirituality within and follow a path and feel better and stay healthy at the same time. So, what is now the most important thing to you in your life, Atherton? Wow, that's uh, I'm not even really sure how to answer that. Um, 
you know, I, I, I practice the, the three simple things every day. I, I, I keep up the spiritual practices. You know, I, I, I do what I teach. Um, I'm, I'm teaching uh, now again. I'm uh, teaching people how to, how to run a successful healing practice because uh, people can be very confused about uh, how to do that. Um, I teach uh, the art of intuitive journaling. I teach people how to do the intuitive dance. Um, and then I have my practice. Um, you know, I'm, I see, I've, I've slowed my practice down a little bit. I'm down to about 60 people a week now. And, um, and, and other than that, I'm enjoying being a grandma. <laughs> oh, isn't that great? And, yeah. and what do you still love the most about your work? Um, it, I have to say it would be the honor to be in the room and be a witness to so many people um, and the, uh, being a witness to their healing journey. Um, it's, uh, it's an honor and a privilege to, um, to assist them on that path. Uh, every day is different. Every session is different. Uh, I, I'm in, in constant awe of the, um, the things that happen in the room, the things that I learn, the things that clients teach me, and, and, and being able to be a witness to the healing that they are able to undertake by you know, finally facing some of the traumas that they've been through. And I imagine that you have a, a, a wide spectrum of clients. Have you ever had someone walk in who was just amazingly intuitive and already had the the four qualities honed? Uh, have you ever been just like overwhelmed uh, by someone like that? Um, not overwhelmed, but in awe. You know, I remember I had a four-year-old come into the room once, and she walked into the room, and she took one look at me, and she said, oh, you're not ready to work with me. <laughs> Oh my God! And her mother was horrified. And I said, "No, she's. You're right." I said, "What? What's? What's wrong?" She says, "Well, the room is. It's too full." She says, "You haven't cleared yourself." And she was only four. And so I said, "Well, you know, give me a minute, and I will clear myself, and then we'll see where we go from there." You know. And the mother's apologizing, and I said, "No, no, no." I said, "This kid, this kid's intuitive. Let's let's honor this." So I cleared the room and had a glass of water, and I came back, and I said, okay, how am I doing? She says, okay, I'll get up on the table now. Um, I worked on a newborn wow. once who was only three days old, and the minute I touched that child, he went into Buddha pose. Uh, I, I, I'll never get over that. He, he folded his hands together, and he brought his feet together soul to soul. Yeah, it was it was pretty it was pretty amazing. I, I find that a lot of the young people that come in now, especially the ones that uh, are saying that they're suffering from anxiety disorders, they're mm-hmm. so highly intuitive. They just don't realize that they're reading people, and ninety ninety percent of what they're worried about isn't even theirs. And when I start talking to them about you know uh, reading people's energy fields and um, you know feeling other people's emotions. You know, they, they look at me like I've got three heads, but they're so relieved at the same time. And they go, yeah, yeah, well, what do I do about it? Well, let's start you here at the three simple things, and then we're just going to start coaching coaching you through how to, just because you can feel people's emotions doesn't mean you've caused it or created it or you need to fix it. You need to learn how to be a witness to it and just respect and honor the fact that they're not ready to talk about it. And and these kids just suddenly realize, oh, well, I'm I don't have... I'm not, I'm not anxious. I can just read people. Brilliant. Brilliant. Let's go. Yeah, up. and you're giving them permission 
to mm-hmm. be who they are and own their gifts. I mean, what a lovely thing right there reduces the stress and the anxiety because they don't feel like an outsider anymore. They don't feel like they they have three three heads and five horns, that they yeah. are, oh, okay, you've explained it to them and given them an internal peace. Yeah, and, and you're not weird. All of your friends are going through this. Yeah, but nobody talks about it. And I said, well, are you talking to them about it? Well, no, they'll think I'm weird. Well, what do you, why do you think <laughs> you're going through this? Talk to your friends. They're going through exactly the, through the same thing, you know? So. Well, and then I would imagine that educating their parents is equally important in this situation so that the parents understand that their kids aren't weird or they don't slap them across the mouth or, you know, lock them in their room and say, you know, get over it, that they can begin to accept it and say, okay, well, that's a great talent you have. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and I think that's going to take a little a little time because I find that, Generally, when I'm dealing with teenagers who think they're anxious, who are really intuitive, is that either mom or dad have been highly intuitive and they've been terrified to talk about it. Well, you know, I had a a personal experience Um, when I was in my 20s. I went to India with some uh, uh, healer types and uh, and, uh, a a couple of uh, major personalities, and one of them came up to me and said, oh, I know you. And I said, really? I don't think we've ever met. She said, no, 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 I know you from night school. And I said, night school? She said, yeah, you teach on the etheric realms. I've I've seen you out there. And I thought, wow, okay, that explains uh, my my dreams. That explains my dream state. That explains why I wake wake up in the morning feeling a different way, or like I've had some kind of a a, a time travel experience. It Mm -hmm. it clarified it for me. She recognized me from a plane that I didn't even know I was on until I began to explore it. So it can be very helpful. I didn't feel Mm -hmm. I was strange after that point at all. I just uh, chose the people to speak about it with and and, and left it out of the conversation (laughs) for 98% of my friends. Yes, yes. That's brilliant. That's wonderful. So tell me, now someone comes to you, someone says, I have anxiety, I feel strange, I have ADHD, I have, you know, fill in the blank of any of the popular uh, Mm -hmm. conditions. And how do you tell them what you're going to do? Describe how you would begin with a client. Okay. So the the first thing I do is I show them a picture of uh, an aura because a lot of people have heard of them, but they don't know what they look like. So I show them a picture of an aura, and I say, um, you know, this is an aura, and we know they exist because we can take pictures of, the, of this now. And that makes them feel very relieved because now they're not making things up. Um, and I say that I can see auras, um, not to this complexity, because the picture that I show them is a, is a very complex picture. But I do see them, and I don't see with my human eyes. I see with my third eye, and I feel with my hands, so I'm a clairvoyant. And I said, and we know that if you get blocks in your energy field, you can have problems physically, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually. And my job is to walk beside you on that healing journey and to help you find out where the blocks are and then work with you to help you to release it. So then I tell them that I am not a doctor. I don't prescribe and I don't diagnose. That just because I can read their energy, I can't read their mind, so they don't need to worry about that part. And just because I know things doesn't mean I'm the expert. They are always their own experts. 
Um, I then explain to them that we're going to go through their chart um, and then we'll uh, talk about their history. I'll get them up on the table. Uh, they lie on a massage table. They stay fully dressed. I say, I do touch the body. So if you have a fear of being touched, this would be a really good time to let me know. Getting shocked on the table is not healthy for either one of us. Um, then I explain to them that energy work can be very subtle, that they may not feel anything at all in the session, and they may walk out of there and think, well, that's kind of weird. I can't believe I talked myself into it. But they may, may notice that they are happier, calmer, or peaceful somehow. Or during the session, they can feel hot, they can feel cold, they can feel tingling, or they can feel like their body spinning things out. Or it may get really dramatic and they just need to have a really good cry. And then I ask them if they have any questions, and then we get started. Wow. And then um, have they ever had, have you ever had any people struggle to understand what this um, healing is about since it doesn't involve anything but uh, reading and feeling and sensing? Yeah, a lot of people, and I say this to people, I, I say, you know, they'll know soon enough if energy work is the right thing for them and if, if working with me is the right thing to do. Uh, it, generally, I find it takes people anywhere from three to five sessions to see how it works for them because it is completely new. And, uh, and if you see a healing session being done, you can think, oh, good Lord, I can't believe I talked myself into this. I know that's how I reacted the first time I ever saw it. Um, and I think that makes them feel more confident that they don't have to, you know, they don't have to buy into it. They don't have to make a commitment. Um, and then the tricky part is helping people to understand what it means to go through a healing cycle. So I explained to them it works like this. Imagine you're driving down a road, and the road is going through hills, hills and valleys and up mountains. When you go down into a valley, you're going to have a reoccurrence of symptoms. We call that a healing cycle or a healing crisis. And you're going to panic when you go there because you're going to think, oh, my goodness, what on earth has this woman done to me? I am getting worse. And that's not what's happening. What's happening is the body feels safe to go into the symptoms so the body is talking. That's when I need to see you is when you are in a healing cycle or healing crisis. When you come out of that crisis, you're going to work your way up the hill and you're going to get to the top and it's going to be, feel pretty good up there and you're going to feel amazing and you're going to go, wow, this stuff really works. I don't understand how or why. I just know I feel better. This is brilliant. You're still traveling down the road and there's going to be another valley. When you go down into that next valley, it's not because you're getting worse again. It's because the body has said, okay, now that we've reached this new level of health, now you're ready to undo the next level of why you're sick in the first place. And so you have to be prepared for the hills and the valleys. And you're going to start to notice that as you get better, that the it, it takes um, the hills come up sooner and the plateaus last longer. But eventually you're going to hit a mountain and it's going to be like re, uh, going back to the original symptoms. And then that's when we know we're hitting the end point because you're finally back at the beginning. So you may think that you are always uh, you know, taking two steps forward and three steps back when in fact what you're doing is you are walking out of your symptom path. And, and that, it takes a while for people to understand that. They have to go through that before they get it. Well, sometimes when you work with homeopathy or Bach flowers or essential oils or any kind of herbal rem remedies, you have to get worse before you get better. That's just the way that the body reacts, and it, it has to object 
almost to this new input until it accepts it, integrates it, and then uses it to really heal. So it's it's the same process, uh, sometimes physically, uh, as it is energetically, don't you think? Well, yes, it's like lancing a boil. You know, it's going to hurt, but you've got to open it up, and it's going to drain, and it's going to be sore, and it's going to hurt for a while, but you're going to heal faster once you've lanced the boil, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So how has this work changed you for the better? Well, my kids say I'm a lot easier to live with. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there. There's enough reason right there. Yeah, Yeah, there's enough reason right there. (laughs) So tell me about, uh, you know, a tough client. There are so many people out there that suffer from abuse, emotional, physical, sexual abuse, have you had those kinds of clients, and and how can you help them? Yeah. Um, so the clients that have, I mean, some of the stories that you hear in the healing room are just uh, gut wrenching, and uh, and you sit there and, and and you're in awe that these people have survived years of physical, mental, emotional, sexual abuse, and um, and and it's and it's tough, and it's not an easy journey. You know, energy work is not for the faint of heart. So you have to make them aware of that, and then you can go into those stories when it's safe and when they're ready. And some people will jump in uh, with both feet and just, you know, take me there. And other people, it'll, it'll take them up to a year or two. I mean, I've, I've, I've worked with people, and I've worked with them for two years before I found out that they've been viciously raped. Um, mm-hmm. And it doesn't show up in their field. I may get a hint that there's something not quite right somewhere in the body, but I will not bring it up until, they're, until they broach the subject because then I know they're ready. Um, I've had people client, jump up on the table and right off the get-go they say, so my father sexually abused me for the first five years of my life and I'd really like to go into that story. And it's like, right, okay, let's get down to business here. Um, so, you know, everybody's different and not everybody can do the journey. And some people really struggle and I'm always happy to refer out, you know. Yes, of course. And now, speaking of that, I mean, your work seems to be complementary to um, regular medical work as well, to to um, Western medicine, and you mm-hmm. uh, you can work hand in hand with a medical doctor, I would imagine. Yes, I can. Energy work is a very effective adjunct to uh, traditional therapies, you know. And uh, the thing that comes to mind, especially clients who are going through uh, um, chemo and radiation. Uh, energy work definitely dramatically reduces the effects from chemo and radiation as they're going through that. Uh, you know, the other thing is that sometimes an orange is just an orange. You know, if you get a broken arm, you need to see a doctor to have it set. Uh, but seeing a healer after the arm is set can help it to heal faster and you'll have less side effects. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I have the occasional doctor here in town that will refer to me. Um, I've had a lot of doctors say they're curious about what they do, about what I do, and, and, they've, and they've said to their clients, look, if it's helping you to get better, then by all means do it. Uh, and then, you know, there are a few doctors here in town who refer to me as that woman. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, maybe you have a big TW I just tattooed on your forehead. Yes, I am yeah. that woman. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. So, okay, so people out there I know are intrigued. Now, you've written your book. How has that been received by the public? What what kind of feedback do you get about your book? 
Well, I've been really quite amazed. I mean, you you know, you put a book out there and you hope people will enjoy it, but uh, um, I have people coming back in and buying second and third copies because they're dog-eared and they're falling apart. Um, I've had so many people say that the book has changed their life, that um, for the first time in their life they realize that they can, uh, they don't have uh, an anxiety problem, uh, they don't have a depression issue. They have uh, this amazing ability that they've been afraid to take a look at, and this book is teaching them how to do it and do it safely and to feel confident while they're doing it. So that's that's just brought me a great deal of joy. Uh, sales have been consistent now. The book's been out for almost three years, and, and sales are still consistent. I'm, I sell anywhere from 10 to 20 books a week, which is um, you know brilliant, and I'm, and I'm so happy that it's helping so many people. Well, let me just mention the name of the book again, The Intuitive Dance, Building, Protecting, and Clearing Your Energy by Atherton Drenth. Um, it's just, it's an amazing book. It's just one of those books when you stumble across it that it changes your life. And I think it will do that for pretty much anybody who reads it and who's interested or concerned about their own intuitive abilities, developing them, ratifying them, and enhancing them. I, I really think so. Now, you also teach, I mean, you're quite intriguing, Atherton. How'd you get your name, by the way? I've been curious. Oh, well, I was actually named after the first woman my father ever fell in love with, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> How sweet is that? What a lovely thing to do. Yeah. I love that. Oh, and, my God. And, and my mother was thrilled. She loved the name, so she had no problem with that. Oh, it's beautiful. And I went to school in Atherton, California. So, you know, I feel very connected to you. Okay. Uh, the, you. <laughs> you teach you teach some amazing classes. You write the book, you see people, you you're a mother, you raise a family, you're a wife. Um you're going to be teaching a couple of courses uh in the spring. One is the art of intuitive journaling. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, um I have found that uh, journaling is an incredibly powerful tool um as you're going through your own healing journey. And I would have clients come to me and say, well, I don't really understand what you mean by journaling because a lot of people confuse journaling with keeping a diary and it's not the same thing. So mm -hmm. I started teaching this one-day course on how to do uh, the art of journaling and how to uh, allow it to develop your intuitive voice. So when I was first learning how to connect to my healing abilities and I was taking a course on uh, channeling and higher wisdom, uh, one of the things that uh, the instructor really encouraged was to make a point of journaling every day, uh, which I'd already been doing on a regular basis. But what I found was when I went back through my old journals was how much um, spiritual wisdom was already coming through and I, didn't, I wasn't aware of it. So it helps you to hone your intuitive ability. It helps you to hone that inner voice when you have a safe place to write it down. And, and people just need a little guidance on how to do that and how to trust it and how to feel safe with that. So we have. So a lot where of is this course? Can can someone take it online, or do, or do they have to come to Ontario? Well, right now I'm teaching it uh, in person, but I'm hoping to develop it into an online course. So give me a, another six months to a year on the online course thing. Oh, that would be great. Okay, so right now people will get your tickets, everybody. Fly to Ontario. <laughs> when is this? Uh, it's going to be the first weekend in April. I believe that's April the 4th or the 5th. It's a Saturday course. 
April 4th or 5th, whatever that Saturday is. Okay, and that's in 2020, correct? Yes. And then, just so that you don't get bored, you've got another course you teach called Creating a Successful Healing Practice. Um, is there a difference between business and healing? Yes, there, there, there is and there isn't. And, and I think this is where a lot of uh, people really struggle when they open up their healing practice because so often I have people say to me, well, I just want to have a practice. Well, you do have a practice, but you're also running a business. And learning how to marry the two will help you to be successful because I have a lot of uh, people come to me and they say, well, you know, I, I, I took all my courses and I've opened up my healing practice, but it isn't going anywhere. And it's like, okay, well, let's sit down and let's examine what it is that you're doing. Well, they're, uh, they're missing the point in the fact that they, uh, the kids are answering the phone. So there's no direct line. So people don't know how to trust what it is that they do because the kids are answering the phone versus them answering the phone. They're very ambiguous about their hours. They're ambiguous about their rates. You can't do that with a healing practice because healers in particular, we, we're, we're the new kids on the block. And... So people don't have common language on what it means to see a healer, so they they feel very insecure about it. And the only way we can help build trust in the industry is by having a certain standard in place. And how do you build that? Well, I used to manage a doctor's office, and doctors are very particular about how they manage their practices. So I have modeled my practice on that model in order to build that sense of trust and safety for my clients and it works. You know, I got very successful very quickly. So now I'm teaching that business model to other healers to help them be successful because, quite frankly, um, myself and my, my colleagues here in, in town, we are very, very busy, and we need more healers out there, please. <laughs> well, yes, and that's very generous of you to mentor others. That's, that's extraordinary. I have a question. So somebody calls you up, they get you on the phone, mm -hmm and they want to tell you all their problems and talk to you about things, how much time do you give them before saying, okay, you need to come in, we need to make an appointment? So what we're doing now is my receptionist is screening. So people will contact me on my website uh, uh, at ca, and they will uh, find the contact page, and then they will uh, send us an, a query. And what they have to do is they have to say, you know, this is my name uh, here, and just give me one or two paragraphs of what their issue is, and then I will sit down and I look at every request, and then I will decide whether I'm the right person for them or not. And if I'm not, then I refer them to a colleague that I feel would be more appropriate. At this point in our uh, in our interview, I'm sure that the, the listeners are jumping up and down, and those who have – um, uh, who have a talent for healing are dying to know how they can learn what you learn, how they can know what you know. Do you have any books besides your own that you can recommend? Do you have any courses that you would suggest that they follow? How do they follow up now on listening to you being all excited and going for it? So uh, one of the thing, uh, so if they go to my site, atherton.drenth.ca, and uh, go to the workshop page, they'll see that there is a link to um, a, a colleague of mine and, and teacher, the woman I learned from. Uh, her name is Lori Wilson, and she runs a school, uh, an online school called interaccess101.com. And that, I think, is a brilliant place to start because, first of all, she teaches uh, channeling and higher wisdom. 
she teaches a, an excellent medical intuitive course. It's a two-year program. Uh, she also teaches business intuition, and uh, she teaches regression, and a few other courses uh, she's been offering. Uh, so they can link to her site through mine. Uh, the other modalities that I would uh, inc strongly encourage people to look at would be therapeutic touch. Uh, therapeutic touch is uh, international, and uh, it's a very easy modality to learn, you and uh, you can get your level one in a day. Uh, and what it does is it teaches you how to feel very effectively. Uh, the other things that you can look at is to uh, talk to the healers in their community and find out what schools they've trained in. Uh, Reiki is very popular. Uh, body talk is very big down in the U.S. Um, and body talk is a, is a very, very well-run, well-organized organization. So I, I find them highly credible. So those would be some places where I would tell them to get started. Ah, that's absolutely phenomenal. So where will you be in five years, Atherton? And I want to spell your name for everybody, too. It's D-R-E-N-T-H. Yes. Yes, T-H, Um <laughs> Okay. So I had it spelled wrong. Just it was a typo. But uh, anyhow, now I have it all correct. Um, where will you be in five years, Atherton? What will you be doing? What will your story be then? I... This is just me doing this uh, and teaching more people, um, ment I'm, uh, mentoring more healers. Uh, we, we need to get people out there uh, opening up their healing practices. Uh, we need to build the uh, body of knowledge and the, the uh, integrity and the credibility of what it is that we do. So um, I can see myself doing more teaching um, and more lecturing. Uh, I would love to be a part of a school at some point, uh, but I'm still exploring those options. But um, I, I will—I think I'll, I will always be a practitioner. It, It's—it's it's my first love. Wow, wow that's that, amazing! That, you took the words right out of my mouth, Tech. That is awesome. Yes, we ha Hercules, we haven't let you have a breath in here. It's just been, uh, I've been dying to talk to her, and I gobbled up all the time. I'm so no, sorry. I, I apologize for I my greed. Listening. I was listening mesmerized. <laughs> and my dog, uh, my doggy's name is uh, Sophia, but that's short for Theosophia because I'm a lifelong uh, uh, fan of uh, theosophy. We have a picture of uh, Madame Blavatsky downstairs in her living room, and I've been studying it since I was a kid. So uh, oh, uh, wow. I can identify with a lot of what you were saying. Yes. Well, it's uh, it's been a long time since I've I've met another student of theosophy, so this is cool. Well, yeah, I, I, and me too. I mean, I was uh, I, I was curious about Alice Bailey and. Um, and Madame Blavatsky early on in my life, and so I read their mm -hmm. works. It's just it's incredible, um, mind-opening thing. So that you're just receptive to. I mean, I don't know. It just creates. It's like in my mind, it's a chia pet of incredible <laughs> knowledge that just keeps growing and growing and growing because of yeah. the principles that they introduce you to early on. Yes, yeah. yeah, that's so true. So true. Well, Atherton, I'm, I'm going to let you wind this up. I'm going to let you tell us what you want us to know, what you want us to know either about your subject, about healing, things that are important, about the future, about now, just whatever is on your mind and in your heart. Atherton, tell us. Well, um, first of all, I think that it would be so 
I think it would be so beautiful if start, people started to recognize their own intuitive abilities because everybody is born intuitive. Uh, if, if they are raising children to make space for the children to start to express what it is that they're sensing and feeling and, and teach them how to honor it as a gift. Uh, they don't have to become healers to do it, uh, but they can apply it to any part of their life. Uh, if, if you are a healer, um, then uh, God bless you for being out there and doing the work because I know it's not always easy. Uh, if you're thinking about becoming a healer and you're looking for support, um, you're not going to get it. Uh, you have to learn how to trust yourself and, and find a safe place for yourself to, to learn how to do this uh, because people don't know how to accept this. And uh, so uh, looking for your family uh, to support you as you uh, go through this, you know, it's not going to happen, unfortunately, but that doesn't mean that you can't make the space for yourself to learn how to be a healer. Um, I think that uh, if you have clients who are listening and they're really struggling with their health, then I strongly encourage them to reach out and look for healers in their own community. Uh, when you start looking, you'll be surprised at how many amazing healers you have just within a 50-mile radius of where you live. And, and energy work works. If it hadn't been for uh, energy work, I wouldn't be here today. I would have died uh, 20 years ago. Um, and it is such an amazing ability to help other people heal. So uh, I encourage people to uh, explore their intuition, develop it, encourage it in their children, uh, get to know your local healers, and don't be afraid to uh, contact them and uh and, and to utilize their amazing abilities. And then just read everything you can get your hands on uh, if you are training to be a healer. Um, I love um, Debbie Ford's book, uh, The Dark Side of the Late Chasers. Uh, yeah. If you, uh, Healing the, uh, the Child Within by Charles Whitfield, especially if you've been uh, grown up in a severely dysfunctional family. And then the other would be The Four Agreements by, uh, by Ruiz. Uh, you know, those are three books that I have found to be incredibly important. Uh, Donna Eden has written a very powerful book on energy medicine, on how you can do a lot of healing techniques for yourself. Barbara Ann Brennan is another uh, amazing author. Uh, uh, so it, there, there are lots of really excellent authors out there, and just read everything you can get your hands on if you're looking to become a healer yourself. Well, that's incredible. I want to go over your um, statistics again. It is Atherton Drenth. D-R-E-N-T-H, from Ontario, Canada. So it's uh, atherton.drenth.ca to reach you. The book is called The Intuitive Dance, Building, Protecting, and Clearing Your Energy. And people can reach you through your website, and they can certainly go on to Amazon and buy that book. And while you're at it, I would suggest you buy two or three because you're going to love it so much that you're going to want to give it as holiday gifts. So get it now, save money on the shipping, and you'll make yourself very happy and anybody else you want to give this to. So Atherton, you are amazing. I am a fan for life. Thank you so much. Hercules, just in this last 30 seconds, I'm so generous <laughs> to you. Go ahead and pop in. 
Thank you, Atherton. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, Kat knows, I think, the world of her. She's incredibly awesome, and you seem to be incredibly awesome as well. Um, I actually have several shows that are theosophically themed, so I will be contacting you at some point and uh, exploring that avenue of your uh, journey. And uh, I think I'm going to try your uh, exercises. I do a combination of uh, mental, spiritual, and physical exercises throughout the day. And what you described sounds uh, very empowering and easy. So I'm going to give it a try. Well, thank you very much. And I look forward to hearing from you, Hercules. Thank you. And thank, thank you, you Atherton, so much. Thank you for the thank evening. Thank you for educating us on what you do. And God bless you for the work you do in the world. May it continue and may it expand. Well, thank you very and much. It's been an so. pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, we're going to listen to a quick uh, song, uh, King of Dreams by Bran Kerdorian, and then we'll be back for the second segment of the show, Mythic Inspiration. And our guest is Dave Dowling, and the topic is Memories of Steve Reeves.
Greetings and welcome back to the Elysium Project. I am Hercules Invictus and I'm greatly honored to announce um, our second segment for tonight, Mythic Inspiration. Our guest is Dave Dowling, who's been on the show before, and our topic is Memories of Steve Reeves. Greetings and welcome, Dave. Welcome back. Oh, thank you, Hercules. I think it's been a little over a year. Um, I'm glad to be back. (laughs) Anything new and exciting happened over the past year? I'm sure you've had many adventures. I've been following Uh, you on Facebook. Yeah, um, actually, for the listeners, I don't know if they know this, but the widescreen of Thief of Baghdad, it's a German release. It's multi-region DVD. That'll be coming out next month. And if they want to go to, um, here's the website, by the gods, period, CA. And they'll see a description of the DVD. It's in the German title. But uh, you can order through Amazon. I'm not sure if it's Amazon France or whatever, but it's uh, widescreen. It has an English soundtrack. The catch is you need a multi-region DVD player. It's available both DVD and Blu-ray. Wow. Uh, yeah, how coincidental. Yeah. <laughs> Before the show, I was looking on Amazon, and that uh, came up. Uh, and oh, wow. I was looking at a couple pictures and everything. So it's uh, quite a synchronicity that you had mentioned it today. So you are a very big fan of these films. Yeah, I, I am. I grew up on them. You know, I think I, uh, I obviously I saw Hercules when it came to America in 1959. So, you know, I was all of eight years old. And mm-hmm. it's, it's funny when you think about 1959. So we're actually celebrating the 60th anniversary this past summer of the American release. It's been 60 wow. years, and people still remember the movie. They still remember Steve, obviously. And I came into the world when that movie was uh, popular here in 1959. So, uh, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> so my fate is tied to that uh, film in uh, strange and mysterious uh, ways. So you were eight when uh, uh, the film came out, and you saw it uh, in the theatrical release, and you've been a fan of the genre ever since, and you actually got to meet and work with uh, Steve Reeves. Since it's been a year, we'll cover some of the same uh, territory uh, just to give uh, your background to the fans. So tell us about uh, your early life. Um, what happened uh, um, throughout your life's journey? You've done very many exciting things. You're still doing exciting things. Uh, and how did yeah. you come to <laughs> well, uh, after that movie, I followed Steve's career, and as I may have mentioned in the, the segment a little over a year ago, uh, by the time Hercules came out in 1959, Steve was already into making his sixth movie over in Europe, Giant Marathon, so there was a backlog of Reeves' films, so it wasn't like we only saw one a year, we usually saw three a year. And they weren't released in America the same way they were made. Like, for example, Hercules came out in the summer of 59. But the next film, even though Hercules Unchained was a sequel and it was the second film Steve made, the next film that came out in the fall was Goliath and the Barbarians. So the sequence didn't follow the order that Steve made them. So we were saturated. I think over the first two years after Hercules, I think we were treated to maybe eight eight releases here in America. So, you know, Steve Reeves was there all the time. And uh, so, you know, I followed that. And then um, he kind of disappeared 
uh, his, some of his films really, they were like, they went to direct a video like Pirates of the Seven Seas, which was a sequel to Santa Can the Great. And every so often you might see one show up at a drive-in like uh, Duel of the Titans, which uh, was released here in 63, but made in 61. And the other thing is the Americans got kind of shortchanged with Steve's movies. All of them, I'd say not all, well, just about 90% of them were truncated when they played in American theaters. We lost anywhere from 10 to 15 minutes from his films. And every so often you'll see a DVD that's released, usually from Europe, and you'll see the complete version, like the Trojan Horse. That's a longer mm-hmm. version on the German DVD. Uh, the White Warrior, I've never, I've seen different versions of it, but not the complete version. Uh, Morgan the Pirate, and I, I hope this release of Thief of Baghdad has some scenes uh, that I haven't seen before. So, anyway, so yeah, um, and then uh, you want to know about my career, where I went from there? Or? <laughs> Of course, uh, I, I in our pe- previous conversations I discovered uh, that uh, just like with George Helmer, <laughs> yeah, who originally came on to talk about Steve, uh, he turned out to be a phenomenally fascinating person in his own right, and I found the same with you. So yes, share your journey, uh, let people get to know you, and uh, yes, share information about yeah, Steve. Yeah, well, I, I, uh, you know, I, 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 I have a master's degree, and I, I. Um spent my time as a technical writer, so I was always around words. And then I heard about the Steve Reeves International Society, George Helmer's thing. And mm-hmm. uh, I contacted George, and then I started writing articles for for George's newsletter. And then the, that newsletter turned into the classic physique magazine. I think George published maybe 19 of them in total. And through that, I got to know Steve, because anything I wrote, Steve examined before it was published. Oh, very cool. So, yeah, right. It was it was very nice, just you know, for accuracy. And I don't blame him. I don't blame him, because a lot of the stuff you read about Reeves is not always true. There there are actually some myths out there. And mm-hmm. uh, so anyway, uh, I met George in '95, um, I think, summer '95. And then the first time I met Steve and George, or the first time I met Steve with George was in September of 96. Steve was being honored in Falls Church, Virginia, just outside of D.C., at the uh, Mr. America contest. So I spent most of the weekend with Steve and his longtime companion, uh, Deborah, Deborah Stewart. She goes under the name of Deborah Reeves Stewart today. So we hit, we immediately hit it off. Uh, you know, I didn't drool over the guy, and I, I treated him with respect, and, and he liked that. And mm-hmm. he knew that I didn't know that much about his bodybuilding career. I was more familiar with his film career. And so any question I had, he was very willing to answer. I, you know, I never bored him. But, uh, yeah, so uh, we hit it off then. And then um, I saw him at the Mr. North Carolina in March of 98. I actually spent another weekend with Deborah and Steve. George couldn't come in, so I was covering for George. And uh, he was being honored at the Mr. North Carolina contest. And then I saw him in, um, when was it? Oh, March of 99, actually. We met for lunch, uh, George, Steve, and me. And I brought a bunch of uh, pictures and stuff for Steve to sign. And so we ordered. We were at a Denny's out there, very nice Denny's. It wasn't your typical Denny's restaurant. 
And so, you know, Steve is a person who likes to get things done. So we ordered, and then Steve looks at me and says, why don't you go get your pictures? I'll, I'll sign them now. <laughs> so I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so we went over to another table, and I think I had 40 items for him to sign. And he commented on different things, and it was kind of neat. It was just kind of neat. And he actually, when he showed up, he gave me an autographed picture from Hercules where he's, he has the bull by the horns. Yeah. That, that was the picture he gave me. And then the last time I saw Steve um, was at the very end of October 99. He was at a movie memorabilia show in New York City, and my wife, my late wife and I were down to see him with some other friends. And he was there with Soupy Sales, Troy Donahue, and Gail Storm. And I always remember Steve. Uh, it, it was it was nice just seeing him because we were reminiscing about some of our previous visits and stuff. But I do remember Steve saying, you know, they wanted me to come in the morning, too, to sign autographs. And I said, I would for another $500. I'll come in the morning on, you know, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And the promoter said no. So Steve said, well, I won't be here till 1 o'clock. <laughs> so he, he, everybody else was there, but he wasn't. He, you know, he, he stood firm. He stood, stood fast, just, just like he is, like he is. I mean, he was a nice guy. He had a very good sense of humor. Uh, very intelligent, very intelligent. Nothing got by him. And so anyway, my wife was very impressed with him. I said, now, remember, he's I think he was 73 at the time. And I said, well, you know, he's not like his pictures that you've seen and this and that. And he walks in and she says, oh, my God, does he look good in jeans. <laughs> and uh, But he, he was uh, just... Uh, he he was the hit of the four people getting autographs. He definitely was the hit. He didn't look healthy, I will admit that, because he passed away. This was the end of October, passed away the following May. He didn't look as healthy as the other three times I saw him. But we stayed in touch, and I still, still to this day, I stay in touch with um, his lady friend of seven years, uh, Deborah Reeve Stewart. Uh, we still correspond by way of email and send pictures back and forth and reminisce about the old days. So, so anyway, uh, that uh, you became part of his life and he became part of yours and uh, your yeah. life and your friend. And uh, that that's always a great uh, thing when you get to meet the people that you admire and uh, um, yeah. it, it's an awesome thing. Yeah, no, it, it, it was. It, it was, and my my wife even sent out our Christmas letter. Oh, Dave met his uh, star from yesteryear, a guy he wanted to meet uh, all all or for so many years, Steve Reeves. And you know, and some people said, "Who's Steve Reeves?" You know, like, that's understandable. You know, <laughs> but uh, Steve was a very humble person. Uh, he didn't see himself as a star. He just, you know, he made movies. Uh, and uh, as a means to an end, it, w it was a job that paid well. He always said, I would have gone into body build bodybuilding as a career if it paid better. Now, right. we know like somebody like Jack LaLanne, uh, he, he did execute that career well. You know, he had a TV show. He had uh, nutritional things. He, he actually had that blender. I don't know if you remember that blender he had, the Jack LaLanne blender or whatever they called it. Uh, yes, and that yes, did very, yes. Yeah, and that did very well. But uh, so there is one person who did go there, though he, I mean, he was a fitness guru. But, you know, mm -hmm. that's why Steve went into film and people said, well, you have the face and, you know, you have the body. And 
a lot of people saw him as the successor to Errol Flynn. And uh, But it was Steve's goal always to get out of the movies, to get out of film early, because he looked at the lives of Errol Flynn, and he looked at the lives of Tyrone Power, who didn't live very long, and he didn't want to do that. He wanted to enjoy life, and he saved. He was a thrifty guy, but then at the same time, he was very generous. He helped out a lot of people, and in his will, you'd be surprised at how many charities he acknowledged in his will. Quite a few. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, he would never brag. He never bragged about himself, you know. He, he didn't fit into the Hollywood scene. You know what I'm talking about with how people boast about themselves. He was never, never like that. You had to pull information from him. So, uh, you know, he's very, very gracious, very gracious. So I remember uh, when we were in New York, right away he just started talking about Duel of the Titans, also known as Romulus and Remus. And he was talking mm-hmm. about Gordon Scott just out of nowhere. And he said, I told Gordon, and Gordon made over 100 films over there. You know, Steve made 15. And he says, I told Gordon, Gordon, save your money, and then you can enjoy the good life early back in the U.S. and blah, blah, blah. He said, but he wouldn't listen to me. He said he lived in this huge villa. He had Norton motorcycles. He had Maseratis. He said he just lived it up. He lived it up. Well, Gordon was not well off when he passed away in um, 2007. And I did I did interview Gordon in 2006. And I, and I asked him about so He loved Steve. He loved Steve Reeves. Uh-huh. So, yeah, yeah, I've heard many stories about the relationship and uh um, yeah I, I you you shared uh, before and so has george helmer and i've met people who met steve at uh, one point or another uh in their lives and the, the stories are remarkably consistent he was very generous uh he yep. knew what he wanted and it wasn't necessarily you know the movies or the fame that they, they were like you said no. he and uh right. he got out of bodybuilding he used bodybuilding to get into the films and then he used right. the film by a horse ranch, which is way, much closer to where his heart was. Uh, oh, yeah, right. It, it was. But that's, that's why he liked, he preferred to make his films back-to-back so he could spend more time at his ranches in Montana and California. He wanted to get back to the horses, get back on the ranch. But, you know, it was the film industry that gave him that um, capability to, to do that, to be that flexible. Um, I mean, he. I've seen things in print about Steve that I really question. I, I really think there's a miscommunication between Steve and the the author of the article. Like, you know, Steve said I, I trained for, you know, uh, uh, I trained hard for a month before each film. Well, that's true. But Gordon Scott told me he said, yeah, that that is true. I know Steve trained, but he said we did have weights on the set. And I've seen right. a picture a picture of Duel of the Titans, and there, there's a barbell set right there. And and Gordon said, well, we had to do that because, you know, the shooting schedule is like 8 to 12 weeks typically. And we had to look the same way in the on the first day as we did on the last. So, you know, it, we we needed that. I mean, it's kind of a myth. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a couple other ones that, you know, Again, I don't know if Steve said it or you know it was a misprint in the article, but he's been quoted as saying he was the only saying he was the only person speaking English on the set. Well, that wasn't true at all because I asked him directly. <laughs> he said, uh-huh. "Oh no, no, no." He said, "He said quite a few people spoke broken English." And then I thought about it. You know, quite a few of his co-stars went on 
to American films, like uh, Sergio Fantoni. He made a film with Frank Sinatra, Von Ryan's Express, Silva Koshina, you know, uh, Yoli and Hercules films. You know, she made mm-hmm. a film with Rock Hudson and, and um, I think Kirk Douglas. And then Christine Kaufman, you know, she was uh, uh, Town Without Pity with the Kirk Douglas. So Verna Lisi, oh, she made quite a few films. And, and the other thing is um, some of the actress, well, one actress in particular, Sylvia Lopez in Hercules Unchained, she spoke three or four languages, and she was speaking English to Steve in that film, if you watch her lips, and I read that somewhere. So for to make it easier for Steve, she spoke her lines in English to him. So anyway, that was kind of a, a, a myth, that uh, he was the only one speaking English on the set. Um, I've heard, now, I've heard that, and then I've heard other versions of the myth, where um, he was uh, because they, I know they read the lines in different languages. So even uh, on our last show with uh, Brian uh, Walker from Brian's Drive-In Theater, uh, he has that site, that site, you know, that it's kind of like a shrine to uh, sword and sandal movies and other type of oh, uh, yeah. movies. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was saying that uh, they spoke different languages and then they later dubbed everything in. So somebody might have misunderstood that, you know, if Steve right. was the one of the few actually speaking English while they were filming, uh, they might have misunderstood that to mean that he was the only one that spoke English, you know, so I yeah. can see that happen. That's a good point. Uh, Steve in particular always mentioned the, the his third film that he made, The White Warrior. He said there were multiple languages in that film. Uh, you know, there were Spanish, French, Italian, and other languages. And he said that that one was a little difficult to make because of all the language barriers. But there, there's also, they said that, um, I've read where they said they never recorded the soundtrack because they knew the films were going to be a post-synced or, or dubbed uh, right. once they were in the can. Well, that's not true uh, <laughs> because there Another are some... Excuse me. Another myth debunked. <laughs> yeah, right, right. No, there. I have some stills where <laughs> Thief of Baghdad and uh, Duel of the Titans. You see the overhead boom mic, so something's being recorded. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So, um, and then another another myth was, um, you know, I've read where Steve did the majority of his own stunts. No, that's not true. He did a lot of stunts. And he probably could have done all the stunts. But as you know, a producer has to protect his or her investment. And they have right. to protect their star. If their star gets hurt, what happens to their budget and their schedule and, and all the investors? So uh, beginning with um, Giant a Marathon, Steve used a guy he called, referred to as Johnny. His name was uh, Italian name, if I, excuse my uh, pronunciation, but Giovanni Oh, Chief Riglia or something like that. I'm probably people are laughing at the way I pronounced that. But anyway, he he was in there doing stunts for him in Giant Marathon, and then Steve for Morgan the Pirate signed him to an exclusive two-year contract, and he showed up in Morgan, he showed up in Thief, he showed up in Sandokan the Great, you know, for the next six films I think it was Duel of the Titans. And actually, they got very close. They used to go over to each other's place. He used to eat at Steve's house all the time. He loved Steve's wife's cooking. And, and Steve, you know, depended on him. The guy the guy was great. And Steve uh, gave him a part in Santa Can the Great. He actually had a few lines to say, but then he died early, 
early in the film, but he continued to do his doubling for Steve. So, but yeah, so he, and and then there's, if you really want to see where the stunt double is, and it's not Giovanni, but if you go to, if you took a look at White Warrior and slowed it down frame by frame, there, the last couple minutes of that film is not Steve Reeves. It's not. I don't know who it is. They they say the rumor is it was the Italian actor Sergio Ciani, also known as Alan Steele. Alan Steele, yes. Yes, that, that's, that's the rumor. I, I I I don't know, but the last the hand to hand combat is not Steve, and I think they did a bad job of. It should have been a, a long shot, but it looked almost like a medium to a close up shot, and you could tell it's not Steve. And then there's a scene prior to that where Steve is on horseback and he comes into this ballroom and you can tell it's Steve. However, the next scene, next couple scenes, you, it's supposed to be Steve jumping over a table. And the next scene, he jumps over the piano. That is not Steve. All you have to do is a freeze frame and you can see it's not Steve. But it's so quick. It's so quick. So, but no, he, he sure, Steve had fantastic uh, athletic ability. And I remember the reading about the person who trained him sword fighting and working the pirates said he was a natural athlete. He picked it up right away. However, those long shots of the sword fight is not Steve Reeves. The close-ups are definitely the close-ups. But anyway, I mean, if if I were Steve Reeves too, and somebody said, "Look, uh, the, the producer wants you to stunt," I'll say, "Go right ahead. Go right ahead." So. <laughs> yeah, that, that but makes it, sense. I heard that he got a shoulder injury in one of the films that uh, plagued him for uh, much of his uh, later life. Yes, Is that it, it was. It, oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's been well documented. That's the last days of Pompeii. That was um, his fifth film that he made over in Europe. And um, Steve always said they stayed save the dangerous stunts for last. I don't know if this was one of the dangerous ones, but. I guess the story goes, I've read conflicting things on this, but he, the, what you see in the release version is he goes and rescues Christine Coffin from, from a runaway chariot. I think originally there was a stunt double that was dressed up like Christine Kaufman. And when he got over to the chariot, he got on the chariot, the chariot skidded off and his shoulder ran into a tree. So, he, you know, he dislocated it, he popped it back into joint, but then uh, there's a scene at the very end of the film, and I don't know if this is the way it was filmed in that sequence, but at the very end of the film, it shows him jumping off a pier, and he eventually swims under this flaming kerosene and comes up and gets on this boat. Well, that's when he really injured it because of the strokes, the, the uh, swimming strokes. He t- I, think, I think he was doing the breath stroke, and that's when he really injured it there. So, But, again, if you look at that film, you see him... <laughs> You see him dive off into the water. Then the next shot, it's from behind. And that's not Steve swimming. That's somebody else. You can always tell by the haircut. (laughs) 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 And it's like, you know, a Trojan horse. Uh, A lot of that was done by his friend Giovanni. Uh, But they're they're the long shots. But you have to look closely. Uh, But, again, when 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 Giovanni's back is to the camera, he had a different haircut than Steve, you know, the way it came down on the back. So... But, again, it's not taking anything away from Steve's athletic ability. It's the wise thing to do when you have a star of Steve Reeves' magnitude. Um, yes, that is very wise, and stars do get injured, and he himself uh, got injured, as, you, as you've as you shared. 
Um, yeah. Steve launched an entire genre, kind of uh, single-handedly, in his portrayal of uh, Hercules, and we got, you know, many, 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 many films uh, that followed for about a decade. Oh, yes. Where yes, that... different actors uh, played Hercules. The, the character was very consistently uh, portrayed with uh, the slight, you know, the slight. Uh, personality uh, of each actor, including Sergio Siani or uh, Alan Steele. Um, and each of them gave the role something, but uh, Steve was the template. And yes. he's what made yes. Hercules recognizable and gave him that uh, image. Um, yeah, right. And I've seen it on like model kits and uh, um, I saw they made like a doll of Steve Reeves recently or like an action figure. Action figure, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's quite a an amazing thing where someone who's doing something as a means to an end takes um, mm-hmm. that level of stardom because you shared and George shared uh, in the past that uh, at one point he was the highest uh, paid actor in the world. You know, so that that is that is something. Yes, yes. He uh, once he hooked up with uh, Aileen, who became his wife in 1963. I think he met her in 1959. She could speak six languages, plus she was an attorney. And she did his contracts, his negotiations and stuff, and the first thing she did was bump his salary each picture. And I think yeah. it ended up 250000 he was getting for the last three or four films or whatever he did. But yeah, but you, you touched on something too about, basically Steve didn't want to be typecast as Hercules, and he said that while they were making the sequel, Hercules Unchained, he looked, they're on a beach scene. It was either, you know, the Mediterranean or the ocean or whatever, but they're on the beach. And he said he looked down farther on the beach and he saw another Hercules film was being made, you know, by some, someone else. <laughs> he said, that was a clue. Whoop, I'm going to get out of this. I'm going to get out of this. So, but even when he went into, you know, White Warrior was his, his next film after Hercules Unchained, his director of Hercules and Hercules Unchained, Pietro Francesi, said, oh, you, that's not good for you. That's not good for you. You're only Hercules. You're only Hercules. And, and, and I don't know what Steve said. You'll see. You'll see. So, but, but you know, the, a lot of people know that it was Joseph E. Levine who brought Steve to America, his films, yeah. in, the, in 1959. I, I understand he bought the uh, rights, the North American rights, or the American rights for Hercules for 120000 but he put, I guess, a million into just the promotion and marketing. He was very smart, and he made a lot of money. But uh, And then he did, did the same thing for uh, Hercules Unchained. Well, what happened was, uh, and this goes back to when I'm, uh, I was talking to Steve in March of 99 when he's signing all my photos and stuff. He came across a lobby card set that I had of Morgan the Pirate, and he goes, aha. He said, Levine wanted me to make a third Hercules, Hercules against the gods, and I talked him into doing Morgan the Pirate first. So so he signed a two-picture deal. He did uh, Morgan the Pirate and Thief of Baghdad, and there were contract disputes in both of those films with Levine. I, I don't have to go into any detail, but... Steve still respected the guy, but but uh, the relationship, the business relationship, didn't go well, and so 
anyway, Steve said, yeah, I will do Hercules. Uh, I will do the third one. But uh, so they said, okay, it's going to be a – no, excuse me. Let me back up. What happened was uh, Levine said, okay, I'll pay you 25000 for you to get in shape for it. And Steve said, okay, plus I'll pay you 50000 for the film. And that was fine with Steve. But Morgan the Pirate was scheduled for an eight-week production shoot. It went to 16 weeks. So that pushed things that, that yeah that pushed things out. So Steve already signed for Morgan with Levine for fifty thousand plus ten percent uh, of the gross. So anyway, Steve looked at it as sixteen weeks plus another eight weeks plus you know and and uh, Levine one raised the, the salary one raised the salary for all the time. Six Steve was basically out of uh, he was occupied for at least six months. And he, he didn't see any incentives, so it just dissolved. It just dissolved. And uh, he, he never did another film for uh, Levine. For Levine. He never did. That's he, a shame. Yeah. I would have liked to see a third uh, Hercules uh, movie. Um, and yeah. especially since uh, some of the you know the things I've read about it, it would have made it very uh, memorable. Um, I had heard yeah. that there was a recut of the first two movies. Um, but I haven't been able to t- track down um, a, a copy of that or even like clips of it anywhere, like uh, online. Um, and uh, uh, then there was uh, something else uh, that they did with the first two films. Uh, there wasn't like a uh, – the, the first copy I heard was like retelling of the story, uh, but they used elements from both uh, you know, films. Yeah. And then I yeah. the other one was. But I, I have not been able to track down much information on them or or any uh, anything uh, to, to watch. Would you know how where I could find? Uh, well, they it, back in the nineties, they Steve was paid I think thirty thousand dollars because the this film company wanted to combine elements of Hercules with Hercules Unchained and make it a parody, make it a, almost a comedy. The, okay. the soundtrack was totally redubbed, and it was called Hercules Recycled, and it, it was released just straight to video. Now, okay. my, under, my understanding is they've redone it. They've added special effects and something and maybe some more footage and stuff like that. The, the only other thing, uh, I know in, I think it was 73, they reissued Hercules and Hercules Unchained on a, you know, a double bill. And they may have truncated the versions a little bit. I there's no guarantee. However, <laughs> Joseph E. Levine approached Steve and told him about it. He said, "Would you be involved in the promotion?" And Steve said, "Sure. I, I get five hundred dollars a day, plus expenses." And Levine said, "No, that's okay. I'll get some muscle builder." <laughs> so <laughs> he said, "Yeah, he called him a muscle builder, not a bodybuilder." So anyway, uh, so that that broke off. That broke off, and then um, in uh, just just another side about Joe Levine. Uh, in 1964, he approached Steve, trying to, you know, uh, uh, get things back together with him, get, get on good terms with Steve. He said, "I'm developing a TV show, and it's the ABC network, and we're doing a pilot, and it's just called Hercules." Would you be interested? It's going to be an hour pilot. Uh, it's going to be shot in Italy with an all-English-speaking cast, and Steve said no. And Levine tried again. He said no. Well, 
it ended up Gordon Scott took the role, and it became, and it's out there on video, Hercules and the Princess of Troy. And that's where that came from. So, And then another time in the late 60s, I was going through a, an old AFCO embassy, uh, like brochure, because that was the company that Levine owned. And I saw this ad for the Prodigal Gun. It was a Western. It was okay. supposed to come out in like 1966, 65, and it said starring Steve Reeves, and it was directed by Albert Band. Albert Band directed Steve in the film The Avenger. Well, that never that never happened, and I think what happened was that film actually turned into a, another film for Gordon Scott, and it was called The Tramplers because it was the same director, and 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 Levine was the one presenting it. So I think that's what happened. So after that, uh, you know, uh, Levine never approached Reeves again. So, <laughs> mm. yeah. Yeah, I, I, I could see that. And uh, I've heard uh, uh, harsher versions of uh, some of the things Levine said when he and Steve were negotiating uh, for the uh, um, television show. Um, and that would have made a great television show. Uh, I, yeah. I enjoyed that pilot and it stands alone quite well and I could see yeah. it uh, being uh, uh, the start of a whole new series of adventures and it fits in uh, very tightly with uh, Hercules and Hercules Unchained. It continues the uh, the story rather well. Yeah, right, right. I actually asked the Gordon Scott when I saw him in the summer of 2006, I said, did you have any problem with Levine when you made that pilot? He says, oh, absolutely not. No, he paid me what I wanted and blah, 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 and off I went. So, you know, you hear you hear these stories. Uh, the, the thing that, another thing that um, Levine kind of did to Steve, and Steve found out about it later, was after he... Uh, signed for Morgan the Pirate and Thief of Baghdad, he, Levine was telling people that he had the exclusive rights to Steve Reeves. And Steve said that cost him a lot of roles. It cost him a lot of roles, mm-hmm. and it wasn't true. It wasn't true. So, yep, Steve was upset about that. So I, I would be true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. He, <laughs> I mean, Steve had, he had other opportunities. You know, you've you've read where he... He was considered for the Sean Connery role, and I also heard he was considered later for the David Niven role in um, Casino Royale, which was James Bond as well, as you know. Um, he was considered for that, I think, the 1966 film with Raquel Welch, One Million Years B.C. He was going to mm-hmm. have the lead in that, but, but Steve said, that's caveman talk. I don't want anything to do with it, plus uh, the salary offer was low. So, and, you know, he um, also, obviously, people know he was offered the role in Fistful of Dollars by way of Sergio Leone, his, his basically his director in Last Days of Pompeii, because the director fell ill during the filming of Last Days of Pompeii, and uh, Steve turned that down. And I, I do remember uh, at Steve's funeral, I was talking to a, a guy named Richard Harrison, uh, who made a lot of films over in Europe. And Richard yeah. always, yeah, Richard, I said, um, did you know Sergio Leone? He says, did I know him? He said, boy, did he want me for that fistful part. And I said, well, Steve was offered it too. He said, yeah, he was, but he turned it down quickly. He said, but he, he followed me all around. He followed me all around, and I finally said no. He said, I'm the one who recommended Clint Eastwood for the part. And I said, well, that was a good choice. 
wow. what Richard also brought brought to my attention, he said, I really wanted that part of Remus in Duel of the Titans. I thought, you know, they'll dye my hair dark like Steve's. He said, I really wanted to make a film with Steve. And he said, but he gave it to his friend Gordon Scott. And when I was talking to Steve at the, in New York City in October 99, he was part, talking about Duel of the Titans. He said he, he he had some problems with Gordon on the set. And he said, you know, I went out of my way. I got him the biggest payday up until that point in his movie career. And he said, you know, he was late. You know, he just... Uh, he said, because I'm a person who's always on time. I know my lines. Well, Gordon wasn't like that, he said. And he, Steve and his wife had a post a $50,000 bond to the producers in case Gordon took off on him or didn't finish filming. <laughs> yeah, so things things like that. But uh, Steve would just kind of smile when he talked about Gordon. They loved each other, but Gordon had a definitely a different work ethic. Steve was... Uh, very uh, stringent, I guess, uh, you know, strict about his work environment. He actually told his stunt double, Giovanni, he, he said, I insist that you go to bed at 9 o'clock because we've got a long day tomorrow and you can't be tired and I want you to eat the right things and blah, blah, blah. So, uh, yeah. Oh, uh, that reminds me. I mentioned the um, Thief of Baghdad DVD. There's also going to be an extra on there and there's going to be an interview with Giovanni. On there. Oh, great. Now, great. Now, it could be a repeat of the 2006 release of Romulus and Remus from Germany. And I, that's, that's uh, he speaks in Italian with German subtitles. I actually had a person translate it for me who knows Italian. So it could be a duplicate. It could be duplicate. I hope it's not. I hope it's a new interview with Giovanni. Because Giovanni is uh, in his 80s. He still lives in Italy. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to that DVD. <laughs> Me too, and you've, you're you an author too, and one of your books is uh, on Steve Reeb's legacy in uh, films. Is that a collection of your magazine articles that you wrote for George? Well, yeah, no, because I have quotes in there, direct quotes from Steve from all the conversations we had, and also, uh, right, there, I pulled some of the information from the newsletters that I wrote for George, and then a, a lot of it, you know, it's just the research. George and I did that together. I guess, that, you know, as I say, it was a labor of love. George did uh, quite a bit of research for me. All the photographs and the rare things, the contracts and stuff, are all from George's collection. He did the layout, uh, the printing. I, I, I wrote 99% of the text. That's what I did. So uh, I couldn't have done it without him, and he couldn't have done it without me. So... <laughs> But it, it's a uh, yeah, it's a uh, a collection of of things uh, during my research, and also direct from Steve's mouth or from Deborah. One of the most interesting things Deborah told me, and it goes back to Steve, you know, not really putting a big emphasis on his film career. <clears throat> she told me that she said, you know, Steve, he didn't see some of his films until they came out on video. I said, really? Wow. <laughs> she said, yeah. I, I said, that's hard to believe. She said, he didn't care. He didn't care. And I said, well, what film? She said, well, The White Warrior, Goliath and the Barbarians. And she said, I think there's another one, too. But when when they put the, it was a VHS tape, <laughs> when they put the tape in the thing, that was the first time he ever saw it. You know, he wasn't one of these people that went to all his movie premieres. Like, you know, you, you've heard Hollywood uh, yeah. actors do. 
But no, he he didn't care. He didn't care. He got a paycheck and he went home. You know, so it was a little, a little different <laughs> that, attitude. That, that was Steve. And the attitude, uh, um, as far as I can tell, the only uh, thing that uh, saddened him was uh, uh, that he wasn't uh, a father. Yeah, um, that's true. But but I heard that uh, from everything I've read and everything people have told me that uh, um, he planned his life out the way he wanted it. And uh, uh, for the most part, he got just about everything he wanted. And that's more yeah. than most of say. So well, that's a great thing. Well, Deborah put out a book, uh, I don't know, five years ago, uh, Steve Reeves, Legends Never Die. And she mentions that. I think Steve's first wife was pregnant, but she lost the child. And oh, then she also, she also said that Steve said, you know, maybe it's just as well I didn't have any children because I might have been, I might have expected too much from them. He said, I expect a lot from myself and I do from others as well. And he did. He did. He was a very high achiever, very high achiever. If he was going to get something done, he got it done then. So he said, maybe it's just as well I was never a father. So, but uh, yeah, that was in Deborah's book. That was definitely Deborah's book. Yeah, I think I got it on Kindle. Uh, speaking about Kindle and uh, books, um, is your book going to be reissued? Uh, it's uh, I, I was well, looking it, up it, Amazon and uh, eBay and looking at other uh, places. Any plans to put that out on Kindle or to reprint it? Well, George and I talked recently, and he said he'd actually like to kind of redo some of the movie book. And I said, well, okay, well, keep keep me in the loop. Uh, it's still available in its original form directly from SteveReeves.com. Okay. Uh, it originally came out with a color version and a hardcover version, but they're not available. Just a black and white version is available. So, no, you can still get it. You can still get it. But you're better off getting it directly from George you know, at SteveReeves.com. So, but, yeah, be- I mean, I, I could see myself adding some chapters and stuff. But what George has done, though, to um, kind of actually, it's almost like they're addendums to that book. He's put some stuff out on the SteveReeves.com blog. There's an article out there about Giovanni, the stunt double. There's, uh, There's articles about some of the things that the society did. There's about 10 or 12 articles out there, and they're interesting. They're interesting. Uh, there is one article out there that, that might get your listeners' attention, and okay. that is um, you've heard of Milton Moore's book, One of a Kind, that came out yeah. in 83, the biography. Well, Steve Steve liked that book. He actually would sell it at his public appearances. There were only 1,200 uh, printed, and George and I were always after Milton to print some more copies. He said, no, I, don't, I didn't like it the way it was. However, what I'm getting at is that's not how that book started. Milton Moore actually started writing a biography of Steve in 1973. And I've seen it. I've seen a copy of it. It was never published. But it's about 340 pages, eight and a half by 11, no pictures, double typed, you know, space. Because wow. it's not, a, there was no word processors back then. It was all typewritten. It's got some of Steve's comments in it. And he shopped it around to publishers. And the closest he got was in, 19, I think, November 1974, Drake Publishing in New York wanted to publish it. 
And so Milton was working with Steve's, uh, Steve and Steve's wife, Aileen, at the time. And uh, they, got to, they got so close, but then Steve wanted more control of the project, Steve and Milton. They, they wanted more control of, actually, the paper stock. They wanted a non-porous finish. They wanted, uh, like, an 8 by 10 size. They wanted different pictures, and they wanted a, a different royalty rate. So the publisher said, we, we can't do all these things, uh, we're, we declined. But there actually was a contract, and they returned the contract to Steve and Milton. So what Milton did was, he never gave up. In 1979, he came out with uh, what they call souvenir booklets. One was okay. uh, like a steep, uh, red sepia, like a, a red tone, and the other one was a blue. One was 16 pages, a lot of pictures, some text. One, the first one came out, and Steve was getting a royalty from the ones that Milton sold, and then the next one came out was 24 pages. They weren't uh, – I'm not sure of the format. I'm not sure if it was 5 by 7. I'd have to check what format it was. So uh, and, and then, that, so that was 1979, and then they were so popular, Milton came out in 1982 with a tribute, which is a uh, like a, a smaller version of one of a kind, and that did mm-hmm. well. And then Milton, he pursued it more, and that's when One of a Kind came out in 1983. And Steve always considered that his biography. He always did. Not a pictorial. He considered a biography, but he geared the book with Milton to show a lot of pictures. He said, this is going to make it a hit. And he was right. He was right. right. It's loaded with pictures. And I'm sure you've seen it or heard of people who have it. But that's the evolution of One of a Kind. It started out as a huge biography. And... I've read that biography, that original biography. <laughs> and wow. they, they, obviously they talk about Steve's, you know, bodybuilding career and the film career, but Milton focuses on a character study of Steve. And there was one thing in there I always remember reading. It was when Steve was working out in York, Pennsylvania for the Mr. Universe. John Grimmick was there and and other bodybuilders were there and they were doing all different things and Steve and John Grimmick had an arm wrestling contest and Steve broke John Grimmick's pinky during the arm wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but it's uh yeah, so um that's how one of a kind evolved. So, but wow. Uh, yeah, no, it's quite an extensive biography. Uh it's all up to Milton what he wants to do with it, but I, I did. I was able to read a copy uh, a while ago. So. I believe a, a, a new edition of that came out on Amazon at some point. Uh, I might be mistaken or confusing it with something else, but um, I think I read. If if that indeed did come out again, I, I did read it because uh, mm, uh, not one of a kind, uh, Hercules. Okay. Um, there were only twelve hundred made. And uh, as I said, you know, Milton wanted to add more to it, and uh, yeah, he self-published it. He self-published it. But uh, no, the only copies you can find, if they're on Amazon, they're rare. You know, somebody selling them from their house, not not through Amazon. You know, uh, Amazon's not producing the book, or eBay. But it's nothing. It's not unusual to see the book go for at least three hundred to three hundred fifty dollars. It's about one hundred and ninety-two pages, hundred something like that. Uh, eight, eight and a half by eleven. But uh, so you, no, it's uh, you, it's quite it's the holy grail. <laughs> so you 
So you, you give me a lot to uh, quest for, and I want to thank you for uh, giving me the title of Hercules Recycled, uh, because I, I Googled it uh, shortly after you said the title. I found a bunch of stuff on it. So uh, uh, there Okay, are and then also, you, you can also try YouTube, and you may see the, the revised version of uh, Hercules Re- Recycled that hasn't come out yet, the film. Oh, that's something I purchased. So, uh, um, awesome. Do you know when it's going to come out? No, I I don't. I don't. But uh, it was about, oh, three, four months ago, they put out a promo, maybe a two, three-minute promo on YouTube. If you just do a search on Hercules Recycled, you'll see that it's been updated because you'll see the CGI, you know, the special effects. So. They added CGI. uh, That's awesome. (laughs) Right, right, right. Well, yeah, <laughs> I know. These films are all done without that. We're all we're all done without that. So, uh, but the, at the time, like Thief of Baghdad was considered a a very good special effects film. They had it done by the special effects were done by that British uh, artist uh, Thomas Howard. So they were all done over there. And you know, Levine, Joseph E. Levine, fronted money for both Morgan and Thief of Baghdad. And I have to tell you, uh, I, Morgan the Pirate is my favorite Steve Reeves film. Uh, I like the music, but I like the photography. And if you've ever seen a full widescreen, it's done by the same cinema, cinematographer that did Once Upon a Time in the West, Once Upon a Time in America, The Good, Bad, and the Ugly. You can uh-huh. see the style. So that's the same cinematographer. And he also did Thief of Baghdad. So, uh, yeah, I, I and I... The the thing about Morgan the Pirate too, I always call it the most Americanized Steve Reeves film because the director Andre de Toth, who who lived in America but he was Hungarian, uh, Steve was telling me over dinner once. He says, yeah, he was Austrian, and I said, no, no, I think he's Hungarian. Yes, you're right, you're he's Hungarian, but anyway, uh, what he did was the, he used the technique. He had anybody who could speak any kind of English spoke English during that film, especially when there was a scene with Steve. So Steve would get the the real reaction from another yeah. English, okay? And uh, sometimes when you'd see a close-up of Steve reacting to somebody, it could have been a stand-in who knew how to speak English, but not the actual actor. And that's the way Andre de Toth did his... He did three films over in Europe during that time. He did one with Jack Palance. He did one with Jeffrey Hunter, Gold for the Caesars. But that's how he did it. He said, oh, he said, I never, what he called, post-synced. He said, no, they spoke English. I wanted people to speak English. So, anyway. But anyway, that's why I say it's the most Americanized, because if you watch the lip movement, it's very close. And another one that's very close in the lip movement is Sandra Can the Great. I, I mean, it's you know, it's a good film and stuff, but it's not, yeah. to me, it's not the, the level of a Morgan the Pirate or Thief of Baghdad. Now, so. um you are full of these uh, tales, and they are phenomenally fascinating. Any plans on putting these stories uh, together in book form? Uh, well, yeah, I've thought about it, actually. I've thought about it. Uh, nothing concrete, nothing concrete. Okay. Uh, I mean, there's so much social media out there, and I think that's what George is doing with his blog. I think he's putting these articles out there about Steve's life and, you know, his different trips through the society and, you know, down in Falls Church. Uh, He may write one on his trip to North Carolina. He may write one on uh, Steve's last days. I don't know, but uh, 
I'm a little little hesitant because, I mean, I'm sure it would have to be self-published. And the self-publishing world has has really changed, even though you get great distribution through Amazon's CreateSpace. uh, They tend to uh, publish stuff that's not verified, not true. So you don't know what you're buying. You don't know what you're buying. So anyway what we're listening to but that is a conversation for another day uh, our time is just about at its end how can folks get in contact with you and i'm inviting you back for uh, a, a continuation and it won't be a year from now it'll be very shortly because uh, this is a phenomenal well, conversation the, i mean they they could just count i'm um, listed on facebook you know that that reminds me i just want to clear the air on facebook uh you're familiar with the uh Facebook page Steve Reeves Forever. Yeah. Um, I'm on that, but there's also another Dave Dowling on that, and he comments oh. a lot more than I do. I, one of us has to change our name or our username, <laughs> so <laughs> because I've gotten I've gotten some interesting messages from people, and I said no, that that's the other Dave Dowling. <laughs> okay, my where it says Dave Dowling, you'll see my picture. The other person, his picture isn't there. Okay, and then, um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I just want people to know that because uh, I do get interesting messages. <laughs> okay, <laughs> thanks for the warning. But I, uh, I think that's I the, the best way. The information that people should check, yours is the one with the portrait. Right, mine's the one with the portrait, and they can they can click on that, and then they'll see, you know, I live in Saratoga Springs, New York. I think the other person is overseas somewhere, you know, and uh, that, that's how they'll find out. I, yeah, so I live in New York, and um, but this is a different Dave Dowling, and he likes to comment on the same website or the same Facebook page that that I comment on once in a while. So, but anyway, so. Yeah, just a little uh, thing, and um, oh, one more thing. Uh, if I got, sure. if you got a minute, um, there a book came out in 2012 by an author named Scotty Bowers, "My Adventures in Hollywood and the Secret Sex Lives of the Stars." Well, he he mentioned Steve Reeves rented out his sexual services to people. That is totally false. It's just totally false. I just want to clear the air on that. And Steve okay. would be livid if he were alive today, knowing somebody did something like that. Um, so I just wanted to clear the air on that. Okay. Thank you, and that is a, a very uh, interesting place to leave the interview, and it will be to, to be continued. Thank you very much, Dave. Oh, and I, uh, thank I'll... you. Anytime, anytime. And thanks to all who joined us tonight. Until next time, this is Dave and Hercules wishing you joyous journeys and amazing adventures. Thanks for listening to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. Join us seven nights a week for exciting programming covering a variety of expressions of faith. And remember... All manifestations of the divine are equally valid.